All right. We are uh, we are in the middle of Romans chapter ten, and we've really been working uh, now for two or three weeks just on this one passage, verses five through thirteen. Uh, I didn't expect to take that long on these verses, but but it really they are. Uh, some of these verses, are, of course, are very familiar to us, uh, and. Uh, uh, but other parts of it are very difficult to kind of understand and figure out uh, precisely what it is that Paul is trying to say. And so I, I felt it good for us to kind of slow down and really uh, really uh, process these, these verses before we move on. Uh, so, uh, uh, as I said last week, we were uh, primarily we were doing kind of verses 5 through 10 uh, and looking at those in uh, in a little different perspective, we the first week we kind of laid a foundation, and then last week we built on that foundation, uh, and this week uh, hopefully we can conclude can conclude looking at these verses, particularly verses 11 through 13. Uh, but let's read the passage again just to refresh our minds, uh, and then review some of the things we've talked about and go on from there. Beginning in verse 5, well, let's go back to verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer uh, to God for them, that is for Israel, he's been talking about, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will, descend, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are preaching, that. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay? Well, let's go back now and think, uh, what are some of the things that we've been talking about in this passage, particularly last week, what are some of the things that we learned? Last week, last week we started uh, a chart about, about ascending and descending. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Some of the uh, ramifications that you were. Okay. Jesus brought it down because he was the incarnation. Okay. Okay. And then it went on where uh, 
we confess with our mouth and we believe with our heart. Uh, the mountainside confession and belief is faith, is tied to the heart. Uh, both going back to the salvation. Uh, the last one was you had the, uh, the calling, the universal lordship. And then uh, the second, then on the defense side, you had believe. But one thing I, I, I kind of pondered all week was righteousness. The only way you achieved the righteousness was uh, in the, the faith of the heart. Okay. And okay. Anyone who wasn't here has no idea what I'm <laughs> Okay. Well, let's work on this because this is important. Basically, what he's referring to is, is that in this passage, uh, Paul kind of develops when it comes to the... Well, first, let me back up a little bit. What Paul is doing here is he's explaining to us the distinction between the righteousness that's based on the law and the righteousness that's based on faith. So first, he's, he's talking about the righteousness based on law and he says if somebody is going to, uh, if somebody's going to practice that righteousness, if that's how they want to get saved, then they've got to live their whole life that way and that's what... That's what Moses said. That's, uh, that's Paul's point, that, that righteousness by the law requires a complete, perfect adherence to the law. But then he begins to tell us what the righteousness based on faith says. So in verse, uh, uh, verse 6, he says, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. And then he tells us what the righteousness based on faith says. And what he does is he kind of develops two themes or uh, as I was thinking about it last uh, this week I was thinking maybe a better word to use is the word motive not motive but motive what's a motive okay it's a repeated pattern it's uh, you might get it uh, for example uh, uh, say in in a selection of you ladies you select some wallpaper to I know nobody ever does that anymore, but you select some wallpaper to hang in your house and, and wallpaper tends to have a motive to it. It has a pattern. It has a theme that's repeated throughout the wallpaper. Okay? Uh, and uh, so what we have here is we kind of have two motives that Paul uses to describe for us or to help us understand what it is that the word of faith says what it is that righteousness based on the faith based on faith says okay and and those two motives are connected with two parts of our body the mouth and the heart and this is the chart uh, uh, chart that we were just speaking of here uh, so you have you have the motive of the mouth and the motive of the heart and these two things are kind of go down through the passage. And what I told you, what I promised you last week is that I would show you how these two motives kind of just really all blend together. And they're really kind of one thing. Okay? But I didn't get that far last week. So this week, I'm going to show you how these two things actually blend together. But let's kind of... I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm not touching that. Okay. Uh, so, so let's kind of just kind of review that chart, okay? Milford had uh, had it written down. Some of you others may have jotted it down. But what are what are some of the things in this passage that come that that are tied to this motif of the mouth that we see in this passage? Oh, 
Okay, the idea of confession. Okay, and that confession had to do with what? Okay, had to do with the lordship. We'll talk more about that in a second. Okay, what else? Okay, had to do with the incarnation. These are all thoughts or ideas or issues that are we're all tied to this motive of what the mouth says, okay? And uh, there were some others there, but how about the heart? What are the things that were connected with the heart? Faith. Faith, okay. Uh, faith and believing, okay. What else? Righteousness. Excuse me? Salvation. Salvation. Okay. What else? Anything? Resurrection. Okay. Okay. Well, that's enough to give you an idea if you weren't here last week. Aha. Aha. Okay. Good point. Okay. Salvation. Okay. All right. Uh, that's that's a really good point. We'll bring that out here in just a minute. Uh, why that's true. Okay. So the point is that Paul is using these two these two themes are coming out as he's talking about what the gospel is that he preaches. Okay. And it has these two ideas or these two themes in it. Now, why is it that Paul chooses to use the idea of the mouth and the heart? What is it that prompts him to use this outline, if you will, or this formula by which he is explaining to us the idea of the gospel that he preaches? What prompted him to use this outline? Where does he get that? Well, some people, when they talk about the first six, do not say in their heart they will ascend into heaven or the Okay. 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 We did talk about that. That's not quite the answer I'm looking for, but we talked about that. But that, but that thought that we developed that the, that the gospel is not some kind of esoteric knowledge that's hidden. From us, it's away from us, and we have to go get it somewhere. Okay, it's not that, so we don't need some kind of guru or some kind of enlightened person. So we talk about that, but we know that is true because of some other things. But the question I'm really asking is, how did Paul come up with this outline by which he is explaining to us the words, the word of faith? It's the, passage in the passage in Deuteronomy. Okay. It says God is yeah. Okay. Okay. So he's quoting Moses. Remember, we we went two weeks ago. We went back and we looked at that passage in Deuteronomy to see exactly what Moses was saying. And Moses was telling them that when they when they go into Canaan, when they go into the promised land, okay, uh, this is uh, involved in the covenant at Moab. 
as they're going into the promised land, he says to them, uh, God says to him, now don't say that the law is far off. It's too hard. It's too difficult for us. Because, so don't say somebody has to ascend into heaven to get it or somebody has to go across the sea to get it. The law is, is close by you, he says. It's not too difficult for you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart, Paul, or Moses says there in Deuteronomy. Actually, God speaking through Moses says to them, the, mouth, the, the, the law is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. Okay? So it's that, as we've, as we've said uh, several times over the last couple of weeks, what Paul is doing is he's going back to what the law says using Moses. And he uses a passage in Leviticus and he uses this passage in Deuteronomy and he's explaining to us what the law says and he's contrasting or comparing what faith says in comparison to the law. And to do that, he's using Moses' outline. And Moses' outline where he talks about don't ascend into heaven, don't go across the sea. And Paul uses that same idea, don't ascend into heaven, don't, you don't have to send someone into heaven, you don't have to send someone into the abyss. He's using, he's using kind of Moses' formula. And part of Moses' formula is the word is near you, it is in your mouth, and it's in your heart. Okay? So that's where we get this mouth-heart thing. That's why Paul is using that. Okay? Now, when Moses says, or God says through Moses to the children of Israel, when he says to them, the word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart, what is he trying to emphasize to them? What's he trying to communicate? I'm not sure what you say about it, but I, I know what I've thought. Okay. <laughs> okay. Basically, what I thought he was talking about was that God say, I've told you and I've given you all, all that you need. Okay. 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 That's pretty close. Pretty close. Uh, the idea there... Um, uh, let's flip over to that. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Uh, go back to that again. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, okay, I'm missing the I'm missing the exact verses I need here. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Okay. Okay. So he says. Uh, uh, you stand today, uh, all of you before the Lord your God. This is at Moab before they go into Israel. Your tribes, your others, etc., etc. He says uh, that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God. Uh, oh, no wonder. I'm in chapter 29. Okay, there we go. There we go. Okay, now it makes sense. Okay. Uh, for this is the commandment, verse 11, which I have commanded you today. It's not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. Okay. So, what... What God is trying to say to the children of Israel is this commandment, the law that I've given you, isn't too hard for you. It's not impossible for you. It's not out of your reach. It's not something that's difficult to know. You don't have to go to heaven to get it. You don't have to go across the seas to get it. I came to Sinai and I came down and I gave the law to you and there it is for you. Okay, And so, so he says... The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. Now, when Moses says it's in your mouth and it's in your heart, 
He's not trying to make some big demarcation or line of distinction between mouth and heart. Okay? That's not the issue. The issue with Moses there is not that there's some great significance of difference between mouth and heart. The point that Moses is trying to make, that God is trying to make through Moses there, is the word is near you. It's very close to you. Just like what you say in your mouth is close to you. And just like what you believe in your heart is close to you. It's very close to you. It's very near to you. It's not too difficult for you. Right? That's what Moses is saying. What God is saying through Moses to the children of Israel. And it's this idea that Paul is bringing over into Romans when he talks about what the word of faith and as he compares and contrasts the word of faith with the word of the law, as he compares and contrasts those two, he brings that same idea over. And so the argument that I'm trying to make here is that when Paul uses these two motives of the heart and the mouth to describe the word of faith, he's not trying, it's not like he's trying to make a big distinction between what the heart does and what the mouth does. And that's important because oftentimes, I think, when we read these verses uh, in Romans nine, we can, or Romans ten, we can go back over there now. Uh, when we read those verses, where Paul explains what the gospel is, he preaches that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Oftentimes, when we read those verses, just kind of standing alone by themselves, kind of lifted out of their context in Romans 10, and also lifted out of the background context of Deuteronomy, when we do that, we, we oftentimes fall into a trap of trying to figure out, okay, what, what's this big distinction that Paul's trying to make between mouth and heart? And what I'm trying to say to you is, he isn't. He's not trying to make a big distinction between mouth and heart. He's simply using Moses' formula to communicate the idea to us that the word of faith is near us. Just like Paul said about the law to the children of Israel. The word of faith is near us. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. Just like what you say in your mouth is near to you. And just like what you believe in your heart is near to you. That's what the word of faith is. Okay. And so, so Paul is not trying to make some big distinction here that there are two distinct things you need to do to get saved. You need to believe with your heart and confess with your mouth. These are two kind of categorically different things and you've got to do both of them in order to get saved. Okay? That's not, what Paul's, that's not Paul's emphasis here. Okay? But rather he's saying this word of faith we're preaching is near you. It's like what you say with your mouth. It's like what you believe in your heart. It's very close. It's very accessible. It's not too difficult for you. Like Moses says to the children of Israel. It's not too difficult for you. It's close to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. Now, is this legitimate? Is it legitimate for me to stand up here and say to you that that Paul is not trying to draw a great distinction between these two things? Well, let's take a look at these verses. Because I think what you'll see is that there's this kind of blending of ideas. He's got these two motives that he uses here 
But he kind of blends these things together. He uses these ideas and these thoughts interchangeably. So, for example, he says, uh, uh, he talks about, uh, for example, in, uh, let me get back over here. Uh, he says in verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be what? Excuse me? Saved. Okay. So, the idea is that what you believe in your heart and what you confess with your mouth leads to salvation. Which is one reason why we put salvation down here. But in the next verse, he says what? That if you believe that if you confess with your mouth, you will be but if you believe in your heart, you what? Result. Uh, if you believe in your in verse ten. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, in verse ten, in my translation, it says, "For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation." See. All right. Okay. So that's why we put. Righteousness over here. Okay? Under heart. Okay? But what we find out is that Paul, to Paul, there's no difference between the right, between righteousness and salvation. How do we know that? Well, clear back in Romans chapter 1 in verses 16 and 17 when Paul begins to explain the gospel to us, he says, in it, the gospel, in the gospel, he says, the righteousness of God is manifested. Okay? And, uh, and then in the next verse, he talks about how that then results in salvation. Okay, so to Paul, righteousness in Romans is generally speaking, usually righteousness in Romans is this imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ that we receive. And when that happens, we're saved. So so they are. So Paul is using righteousness and salvation kind of interchangeably in these verses. So in one point, in verse 10, he talks about if you believe with your heart, uh, it results in righteousness, you confess your mouth, it results in salvation. But in the previous verse, he mixed them together. You see what I'm saying? So my point is, it's an error to think about Paul trying to make big distinctions here. And oftentimes, when commentators read these verses, they go, okay, well, you need to believe in your heart and then you need to make some kind of confession. You need to do both. And oftentimes, they associate that confession with baptism. So you need to believe... You need to be baptized, okay? But I don't believe that's what Paul is stressing here. I think what Paul is saying here is that righteousness and salvation, those are, those are the same thing. And when you confess with your mouth, you're saved, you're made righteous. When you believe in your heart, you're saved, you're made righteous. Okay? So, so, he, so those ideas of righteousness and salvation are used interchangeably. Uh, but so is the idea of confession... And believing, or the idea of faith. Uh, because, uh, for example, in verse 9, he uses confession and salvation. He kind of uses our, uh, confession and faith. That, they, that the two things together lead to salvation. They don't result in something different. They result in the same thing. That is salvation. But also, you'll notice in verse 11, when he quotes from... Uh, 
when he quotes from Isaiah in 11, he says, For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. That's from Isaiah chapter 28. And But then when he explains it further, using the quotation from Joel in verse 13, he says, For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So, so he's kind of mixing the idea of what the heart does and what the mouth does. The mouth confesses or calls. The heart believes. But they, but they both result in the same thing. They result in our salvation. They result in verse 11. Believing results in us not being disappointed. But we know because of, it, of verses 11's association with verse 10 that that not being disappointed is salvation. So in verse 11, those who believe in Him will be saved. That is, they will not be disappointed. And, and in verse 13, those who call will be saved. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And by this time, your head's probably swimming, okay? My head's been swimming for two weeks as I've been thinking about these. Because what's happening here is Paul is using these concepts so interchangeably because there is not this great wall of demarcation between the idea of the mouth and the heart. Between the idea of believing and confessing. Yes, her. I'm all for reinforcement. The old passage is the same passage that's used, I believe, by Peter. In Acts 2, yes. Acts chapter 2. Yes, uh-huh. Yeah, it's there you go. That's a good, yeah. United That's a great, great analogy. Yeah. Moses says, God says, no, 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 no. Moses, you've got to stop this. This is terrible. Moses says something very, very good. God, that all my people will promise. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Which is fulfilled yeah. in Acts chapter 2. That's right. When all, everyone in this room yeah. has received every Christian. And you cannot separate. Okay, great, good, good points. Okay. So 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 if in fact, as I've argued here, that the, that the issue with Paul is not just try, he's trying to communicate these two great profoundly different things, both of which we have to do if we're really going to get the whole package of salvation. If that's not what Paul is trying to say here, then what is Paul trying to say here? 
What is he trying to say? He's, he's portraying for us this idea of what, does, what, does, what is the word of faith we are preaching. He says, he says, this is the word of faith we're preaching. And he's setting it in contrast to the word of the law. But he's developing his, his picture of what the word of faith says. The, when we're talking about the word of faith, we're talking about the gospel he preaches. What is the gospel Paul preaches? And how does it compare and how does it contrast with the law? Well, there's one. There's some ways that it contrasts, but there's a significant way in which it is compared, in which it's similar to the law. And that is that God through Moses said to the children of Israel, the word is near you. It's in your heart. And he says specifically to them, it's not too difficult for you. Now, of course, we, we know that because we're sinners, we can't keep the law. But the point that Moses was making is, you know, you know, it. it's there. You know, it's not something that's difficult for you to know. That's Paul's or that's Moses point. Of course, the law is impossible for us to keep because of our sinful nature. But as far as our knowledge and our understanding of what God wants, it's in our hearts. It's in our mouths. It's what Romans 1, 2 and 3 says, right? Romans 1, 2 and 3 says, listen, everybody knows. The Jews know, the Gentiles know, everybody knows. You know, it's in our hearts. It's in our mouths. Okay. Now, Paul says, that's the gospel we're preaching. That's, that's like the gospel we're preaching. The gospel we're preaching is near you. It's not too difficult for you. It's in your mouth. And it's in your heart. And so then he talks about this idea of confession. And we talked about that at length last week, right? And what is the confession? We talked about one element of it last week. That Jesus is Lord. And what do we mean by that? What are we referring to? Pardon? Okay. 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 Uh, that's getting a little bit ahead. Of, I want to go there, but that's a little bit ahead of where I want to be yet. When he says to them, you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. What pops in the mind of those Roman those Christians in Rome sitting there in the church as this letter is being read to them, what pops into their mind? What do they think about? Uh, well, before that, well, before that, you confess with your mouth. Pardon? Okay, y'all are forgetting one very important point. Gary, you remember? It's one of the very first Christian, maybe the very first Christian creed. Okay, remember we talked about creeds last week? We talked about how the church throughout its history has used creeds. And we use creeds because as Christians we tend to forget things, right? So we get these creeds and we memorize them so that we remember the things that are important. Okay, And particularly that was critical in the New Testament church because not everybody could read. And even with those who could, very few of them had a copy of scriptures, okay? So it was important. They developed these creeds so that all the believers within the congregation could remember the important 
theological points that they needed to hold to and cling to. Okay, And we've done that throughout history. We've had the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have all these creeds. Okay, Now, for one reason or another, we don't use those creeds typically in our Baptist church as much. I think we'd be better off if we did a little bit more. But... But that was the idea of the creeds, okay? Well, this was the, probably the very first Christian creed. Jesus is Lord. Kyrion Iesus. So when he says, you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, this word is near you in your heart and in your mouth, in the mind of those people in that little church in Rome, that little house church in Rome where this letter was read, what pops in their mind is, yeah, we just did that. When we gathered together to worship, one of the first things we did before we started reading this letter from Paul is we all gathered together and together in unison we said, Jesus is Lord. Now, as Gary was pointing out then, that's set in a context. And the context is, when the New Testament church said Jesus is Lord, they were saying it in stark contrast to the confession of the world, which was Kyrion Kaiser, Caesar's Lord. So when they said that, they were saying Caesar is not Lord, Christ is Lord. Now, they weren't, now, we know that they weren't saying, okay, Caesar may be Lord, but Christ is also Lord. They weren't saying that. And we know that because of the other part of the context that this sets in. Is that there were some believers sitting in those churches in Rome that read this letter who were Jews. And presumably, from the nature of the book of Romans, they were still practicing Jews, which means that twice a day, they were giving in their prayers the great Jewish confession, the Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So here they are in their daily prayers. They're praying and they're giving the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then they're coming together with other fellow believers and they're saying, Jesus is Lord. This word is near you. It's in your heart. And so when they're saying Jesus is Lord, they're saying Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. And He is one. There is no other Lord. So when the believer said Jesus is Lord, he was denying that Caesar was Lord. He was refuting the claim of the world that Caesar was Lord. Okay. So this is the context of this claim, this confession that Jesus is Lord. But it's more than that. When he says that he confesses with his mouth Jesus is Lord, the believer is recognizing in his heart, and as, as, as Herb was pointing out, it's, you can't separate this from the heart. You can't separate this from faith. You don't stand there in Rome and say Jesus is Lord unless you believe it in your heart because it's going to cost you dearly, maybe even your life. 
So it's intricately tied to the heart. Okay. But so but it's not only confessing that Jesus is Lord. But we find out in verse 13 that it's calling upon him as Lord. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So this idea of the mouth and what the mouth does is it confesses that Jesus is Lord and it calls upon him as Lord. Because it believes that as Lord, he is abounding in riches for all who call upon him. Verse 12. Now, still one question about this. We talked about this last week. When the believer says Jesus is Lord, what is he saying? What's he referring to? Gary, you touched on this. (laughs) Gary looks at me like I did. (laughs) Yes. What is when when the believer? When, when the believer makes this confession, Jesus is Lord, or when Paul, the, when Paul is referring to this confession that's made by the church, this creed that the church repeats, that all believers repeat, when a believer does that, what is he saying? That Jesus is what? He's Lord of... It's deal between personal Lord or Lord of the universe. Okay, okay. And this is probably meaning Lord of the universe. Exactly, exactly. Okay, and the reason we say that is because in verse 12, he makes it very clear that he is the Lord of what? All, okay. So the confession here is not primarily or chiefly a subjective lordship that that, that I live my life in submission to the Lordship of Christ. That's what I would call subjective Lordship. Okay. That, that I have chosen to live my life in response to His Lordship and I'm going to obey Him and I'm going to follow His commandments and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. But, and as important that it is, and as biblical as that idea is, and you know, as absolutely vital as it is to our Christian walk, that we walk in that subjective worship. That's not what this passage is talking about. It's talking about the objective lordship of Christ. The universal lordship of Christ. That He is Lord of all. And I recognize that He is Lord of all. And I recognize... That he has this objective lordship. And my subjective, my, my relationship of, of him being subjectively my lord grows out of that objective lordship. I make him my lord personally because he is the objective lord. And eventually all people will experience that subjective lordship. Because at some point every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is lord. So that grows out of the objective lordship of Christ. Okay? Well, yeah. I'm sorry, one of the other things he's saying in this passage, that, and he may have already said this, or we'll get to it, because uh, he started earlier in chapter 10 talking about saying Christ is the end of the law. So when you're mm-hmm. saying Jesus is the Lord, you're also saying that's the end of the law, because righteousness is through Jesus. Okay, good. Yeah, great. Good point. Yeah, I hadn't said that, so that's that's a good point. Okay, no, you said it, so I'll leave it well enough alone. But okay. So then, 
what Paul is trying to communicate to us here, people, is that the gospel is easy. That the gospel is close at hand. That the gospel is accessible. That salvation, that righteousness by faith is easily accessible. Because it's near us. It's in our hearts. It's in our mouths. We've been talking about lordship and we've been... We've been hearing about the resurrection. And remember, when Paul's using the idea of the resurrection, the resurrection is the, is the final stamp on the atoning work, right? He was raised because of our justification, right? In other words, the resurrection is the proof, the physical, material, time-space proof that what Jesus said in those last moments on the cross are true. It is finished. And the resurrection is the proof of that. So when Paul says that with the heart we believe in that Christ raised Him from the dead, what it is is we're believing in the finished work of Christ. Proven and demonstrated to us by His resurrection. And all this stuff is... So easy. All you have to do is believe on it. All you have to do is call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Just that, that's all there is to it, folks. It's not hard. It's not far off. We don't have to have somebody go up into heaven to get Jesus and bring Him down. That's already been done. We don't have to have somebody go get Jesus and bring Him up from the dead. Explain to us some mystical significance to His resurrection because God has already raised Him from the dead and we know what it means. It means that our sins are forgiven. It's established for us. It's already been done. So what Paul is trying to emphasize here is is this idea that the Word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It's this idea of the easy accessibility and the universal of, uh, uh, accessibility of the Gospel. Predicated on the objective universal Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, why do I say that? Well, you'll notice in verse 11 that Paul quotes from Isaiah. He's quoted from Isaiah before, back in chapter 9, when he was talking about that whole thing about Jesus being the stumbling stone over which the Jews stumbled. But it is that this stumbling stone is the, is, the, it is, the, it is the precious stone, it is the tested stone, it is the precious cornerstone, and whoever believes on Him will not be disappointed. And he told us that in Romans 9. He quoted from that passage in Isaiah 28. And now he brings it back again and he uses that verse here in chapter 10. And he says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul, four times in three, uses, three verses, it doesn't come out clearly in our English translations, but four times in three verses, Paul uses the little Greek word for all. And, and when he uses that little Greek word for all, the primary thought or idea of that Greek word, pas, 
the primary idea of that word is each and every single one within a class. So if I say to you, okay, all of you are Sooner fans. Okay. Now, it may not be true, but uh, we won't discuss that at this point. That may not be true. Maybe after yesterday, you all are. Okay. Uh, certainly, you probably most of you are, are uh, Bell fans by now, you know. But at any rate, but not so much Nebraska. But not so much Nebraska. That's another story, you know. Uh, you know, I thought, you know, about midway through the second quarter yesterday, I thought Nebraska's up by 18 points. This is too good to be true. It was too good to be true. Okay. Well, at any rate, uh, if I say that, what I'm saying is within this class within the classification of the people in this room, every single one of you are Sooner fans. Now, that may or may not be true, but that's what I would be saying. Okay? So, Paul uses this word, all, he uses it four times in three verses. And he says, he says, whoever, and really the word there is all, all, every single one of those who believes on him, Will be, uh, will be saved or, or will not be disappointed. Excuse me. No, none of those, none of every single one of those who believe will be disappointed. And every single one of those who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, on what basis does Paul say that? Well, one basis, of course, is that that's what Isaiah and Joel said. The first verse uh, 12 is from Joel and verse 13, or 11 is from Joel and from Isaiah and verse 13 is from Joel. Okay, I'll get this straight. Okay. But he throws this little explanatory verse in here in verse 12. When he says, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. So, what is this little explanatory verse all about? When he says, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, he's speaking in a very specific sense. There are a lot of differences between Jews and Greeks, right? You know, the Greeks worshipped all their gods and they you know, spoke Greek and, they just, and the Jews spoke Hebrew and they, and they worshipped one god and, you know, and they dressed funny and they acted funny and they did all kinds of funny weird things, you know, as far as the rest of the world was concerned. So there are a lot of differences between Jew and Greek. But Paul, when he says there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, is referring specifically to one thing. And that is the issue of the easy acceptability of the righteousness which comes by faith. That's what he's talking about, right? He's talking about the righteousness that comes by faith and as pertains the righteousness that comes by faith, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Now, that's a very easy thing for Paul to say. How does he back it up? Okay. He's building a structure here. And he says to us, he says to us, everyone who believes is not disappointed. So we get the whoever. 
And this is this is part of our structure. But what is the what is this idea of whoever or each and every one? Each and every one who believes will not be disappointed. What is that built upon? What's the foundation that that's built upon? No, you're getting ahead of me. In Paul's argument, just follow Paul's argument one step at a time. First is the whosoever. For, he says, for what? There's no distinction between what? Between Jew and Greek. Okay. So, no distinction between Jew and Greek. Okay? This is the foundation for this. We know that whoever believes will not be disappointed. Whoever calls will, not, will be saved. Okay? We know that because we know there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. What, what, but the question is, what's the foundation for this statement? Because Jesus is the Lord of all, the objective, universal Lordship of Christ. Why do I use those two words, objective, universal? Why don't I just say objective or universal? Why do I use both? My class goes, we have no clue why you do what you do, Rick. <laughs> okay. Objective means that it's, it's independent. It's not, it's not up to us. He is Lord regardless of us. Okay. But it's not just objective Lord. He is the universal Lord. He is the Lord of all. Okay. So he is the Lord of all, regardless of how people act. If nobody ever submitted to God in this life, Jesus would still be Lord. And this is important for us to understand because this means that Jesus is not just your Lord. He's the Lord of the most pagan of all pagans out there in the world. He's his Lord too. And someday that guy will get on his knees and admit it. But he's not doing it yet. But Jesus is still the Lord. And this is the reality that becomes the foundation for this, which becomes the foundation for this. You see what I'm saying? That it's the universal, objective lordship of Christ that enables Paul to say there is no difference between Jew and Greek. And since there's no difference between Jew and Greek, we know that each and every one, whether or not he's Jew or whether or not he's Greek, who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Or who believes on him will not be disappointed. So, so Paul's argument is the universal lordship of Christ the universal objective lordship of Christ makes it so there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. But this argument of Paul's has profound implications that go a lot further than just the question of the distinction between Jew and Greek. 
Why did the Jews think there was a and the Jews did? Why did they think there was a distinction between Jews and Greeks, between Jews and Gentiles? Why did they think that? They had the law, and the Jews were the chosen people. You see, they did. They had different gods, but the Jews believed those gods weren't gods. The Jew actually believed that their god was the god of all. Romans 3, verses 29, etc. Paul uses the same argument. Remember, Paul often argues when he's arguing with people he disagrees with, he starts on the point of agreement and moves towards the point of disagreement. And the point of agreement that he has with his Jewish opponents is the universal objective lordship of God. Of course, now he's arguing that Jesus is that God. Okay. But, but the Jew believed, yes, God created everything. <laughs> and God is God. And there's only one God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. The Jew believed that. So the Jew believed that all men were under the Lordship of God. So that's not what sets them apart. What sets them apart is that God had chosen them. They were the elect. That for whatever reasons, and they had all kinds of different reasons why they thought God might have done that, but for whatever reason, God had elected them. God had chosen them. And He had chosen them for this special relationship with Him. And all of the Gentiles were excluded from that special relationship with God because they were not the elect. And what Paul is doing here is he's blowing a hole in that argument. He's blowing a hole in the argument that there's that when it comes to this issue of this relationship with God, when it comes to the question of who is saved, there is no distinction. The Jew is not elect and the Gentile unelect. Because with because God is the Lord of all. Jesus is the Lord of all. And my message to you, he says, the gospel I preach is that this word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. That the easy accessibility of salvation, it's available to all because Christ is the Lord of all. So I can go confidently to any person who is a pagan, who hates God, who swears at God, who lives a filthy, degraded life, and I can go to him and I can say, God is your Lord. And he is abounding in riches for all who call upon him. And Moses, or Paul says to you, and the word of faith says to you, it's in your, it's in your heart, it's in your mouth, you know it now, Christ died for your sins and His abundant riches of grace are available to you because He is your Lord. In other words, when Paul argues that there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, his argument is predicated on a deeper foundation. So, in other words, this foundation has broader implications than just the question of whether or not the Jew is elect and the Gentile is not. What this foundation teaches us is that God, when it comes to the question of the availability of the gospel, the availability of salvation, the availability of the righteousness of God, there is no distinction between any people because all, 
every single one within the class are under the Lordship of Christ. And because He is the universal objective Lord, and because He is abounding in riches for all, as Lord, He's abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. The gospel of salvation is available to all. So Paul can say, whoever. And there he's not talking about a class of people, a group of people. He's talking about each and every one. Whoever. Each and every one who calls will believe. And Paul's point is, this isn't hard, folks. This is the gospel we preach. This is the word of faith we preach. That this word is near you, it's in your mouth, and it's in your heart. Well, that brings us to a really big question. And that question is, so why isn't everybody getting saved? Particularly, Paul deals with the question in the next few verses, so why aren't the Jews getting saved? And so then Paul has to argue, well, it's our job to take the message to them. It's our job for them to hear. And they have, in fact, he says, heard. So the problem is not that they have not heard. And the problem is not that the gospel is not available or accessible to them. But they have rejected it. And that's where he goes in the following verses. Okay, we'll pick that up next week.